we're reading this morning from Genesis. And if you don't have the passage there in front of you, uh, if you don't have a Bible there in front of you, then uh, please um, use the link at the bottom uh, and it will take you to Bible Gateway where you'll be able to open up this passage. But it's Genesis chapter 43 and chapter 44. So Genesis 43 and 44. Let's read it together. We're reading today from Genesis chapter 43 and 44, starting at verse 1 of chapter 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before that man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and double the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, We were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. 
We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were and then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did, as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. 
Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my lords? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lords. Let me speak a word to my lords. Do not be angry with your servants, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my lords, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring down the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father, I said. I do not bring him back to you. I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Well, it's great to have that long passage read to us, isn't it? In a minute, Dan is going to be speaking to us. But before he does, let's sing again. And this song is an invitation that our eyes would be turned towards Jesus. Let's sing together. I'm sorry. Do you know, those are two words that no doubt we've all had to say at some point. And no doubt we've heard someone say to us. And, you know, whilst those two words sincerely 
and heartfeltly said can do an immense load of good in restoring relationships that maybe in some way have broken down. Do you know, one thing maybe that's worse than no apology is an apology that is hollow and empty. An apology that that changes nothing moving forward. In fact, that's the way, isn't it, that we can understand and know if an apology is real or not. Whether we can find out whether it's sincere is often not in the words being said, but rather in the actions of someone moving uh, forwards. You know, someone once said, someone said, apologies aren't meant to change the past. They are meant to change the future. And, you know, as Christians today, it's really easy to think that in order to patch things up with God, I just need to say, I'm sorry. You know, like they're two magic words that God is looking for. And suddenly, once we say those two magic words, well, everything's okay. When actually deep down, I'm not really sorry. And actually, nothing's really changed. And so we rush to receive the grace and the love that Jesus offers. But nothing changes afterwards. In fact, we carry on living in a way, well, in a way that we were apologising for moments ago. And yet, you know, an apology and a mindset like that, well, we would say that that really isn't an apology at all. In fact, it's what someone called Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He described it as something that preaches forgiveness, yet requires no repentance, requires no change, no difference in the way that we are living. And yet, do you know, that is never the grace that the Bible shows us. We never see a grace that leaves us wanting to keep living in the way that we once were, but rather God's grace always changes us. It shapes us, it it guides us onwards and it guides every part of our lives. In fact, that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning, that the grace that that these brothers of Joseph's have received from him. And we'll see again in our passage, they receive in equal or, or more so in our passage today. This grace they receive, it changes them. We see that they aren't the same brothers that we encountered a couple of chapters ago. In fact, it seems like in this passage, everyone changes. But, you know, if you haven't been tuning in or you've just tuned in this week where you've joined us in our series that we've been going through Genesis and we've been looking towards the end of the book of Genesis, looking at the story of Joseph. And it's an incredible story that we've seen over these past few weeks. Joseph, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's then taken into Egypt, where he's then imprisoned for a crime that he never committed and he's sat there waiting to be released and people who said that they would remember him keep forgetting about him. But the years after waiting, languishing in this prison, he's brought before Pharaoh and God manages to give Joseph an interpretation of one of Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph, he's elevated to the position of being the second most powerful person in Egypt. And he saves not just Egypt, not just the world from a famine that came, but he even saves his own family. These brothers, they come down to Egypt and, and well, they're confronted with the brother that they sold into slavery 20 years ago. And Joseph, instead of, of repaying their evil, he shows them grace. 
and he sends them home to his family with grain and the silver that they were using to buy it. Such grace that Joseph offers to them. And, you know, in our passage this morning, we see the brothers, they're going to go back to Egypt for a second time. And as we look at our passage this morning, I've just got two points for us. And the first one is trusting in God, trusting in God. That's from chapter 43, verses 1 to 15. You see, the first change that we see in our passage this morning is actually from the father, Jacob. You see, if we remember a couple of weeks ago, we were left seeing Jacob in quite a desperate uh, place. He's crying out. He's saying, everything is against me. Uh, This Jacob we've seen, he has gone through the toughest and the most bleakest of times. You know, he's faced with a famine that is endangering the whole of his family. His favourite son, he believes, has been devoured by a wild animal. Jacob has learned now that one of his other sons, Simeon, is being kept as a prisoner in Egypt uh, for when the brothers return again. And now, Jacob, he hears that in order to get some more grain, in order to get more grain to live, his youngest son, Benjamin, will have to go with the brothers to Egypt. And Jacob, he hears that news. And in verse six, of chapter 43 he says he says why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother you see ever since joseph had gone it's clear that jacob right the way through genesis has held on to benjamin the youngest son tighter and closer than ever before Every time in Genesis, we see that the brothers are sent off. Benjamin is kept behind. Jacob holds on to him. You see, Jacob, he has gone through so much tragedy. He's gone through so much heartache. He's lost so many sons, it seems now, that he can't bear the thought of losing any more, of losing them all. And so you can understand, we can understand why Jacob has been holding Benjamin back. Because as long as Jacob, he has Benjamin, he's got something tangible, hasn't he? He's got comfort with him. He's got the hope of a future inheritance, which, as we've been going through Genesis, we see is such an important theme. If he has Benjamin, he has the possibility of that inheritance to come. If he holds on to Benjamin, he's got joy in the midst of sorrow. And most importantly, if he holds on to Benjamin, it feels like he has control. Feels like he has control over the circumstances that he faces. And in Jacob's mind, if he has Benjamin, he has certainty. If Benjamin leaves, well, Jacob's left with none of that. He's left with uncertainty. He's left with everything out of his control. And so if Jacob, if he holds on to Benjamin, as he has right the way through Genesis, he can limit the sorrow that he faces. He can limit the damage that he's exposed to. And he's got certainty for the future. He has control. That's what Jacob has when he has Benjamin. But here in our passage this morning, Jacob's mindset changes. You see, Jacob eventually lets Benjamin go. He lets all of his sons go. And Jacob, he gives this amazing declaration of faith at the end 
of our first section in verse 14. If you look with me, Jacob says this. He says, this is the end of everything. He says, and may God almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. Do you know, it's so interesting here that Jacob says, may God almighty grant you mercy because that is a special name to Jacob that is the name that God used back in Genesis chapter 35 when God he encounters Jacob and God says to Jacob in chapter 35 verse 11 once he's kind of changed his name God says this says I am God almighty be fruitful and increase in number A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And so when Jacob, he says here, may God almighty grant you mercy, he's reminding himself. He's reminding himself of the God he encountered those chapters ago his confidence is in the God that made promises to him that he would give him descendants that he would bless his descendants and it would come through him Jacob trusts in God almighty and at the end it might seem like he doesn't really care but you know when he says if I'm bereaved I'm bereaved But, you know, this statement is one which shows that his confidence has completely shifted from wanting to be in control himself to trusting that actually God is control, to trusting that God is sovereign, that even if everyone did go, he trusted that God would be able to fulfill his promises to him. Because, I mean, if Genesis as a book has been teaching us one thing, isn't it that For however much we think we're in control of our own lives, we're not. And actually behind our lives stands a God who is in complete control, a God who has his hand upon each of our lives, who sees the end from the beginning, who, though things were meant for evil, it says God makes them work for good. And Jacob, he comes into this place, this wonderful place of rest, and of trust in God Almighty, to trust God's promises even when it's outside of his control. He's come to trust that God really is in control, even if he isn't. And Jacob, even if the worst should happen to him, even if the worst, he says, he trusts God. Whatever the circumstances is going to be in the future, he trusts God. God will be faithful to me, Jacob says. God Almighty. And, you know, there are so many things in life, aren't there, where I know myself that I long to be in control. So many areas in my own life that, to be honest with you, I would just rather be in control myself, trust myself rather than fully trust God. Because it feels more comfortable, doesn't it? It feels more assuring to me if I'm the one that's in control, if I'm the one that's directing different things and doing different things because if I'm in control then to a certain degree I've got certainty and I long for certainty because 
Well, the unknown creates anxiety. It feels isolating. It feels unnerving. And so I long to be in control of my future and what I'll do and where I'll be and who I'll be with. And and I long to be in control of my health and I, I long to be in control and of my present circumstances I, I long to hold on to all of these things and yet this morning we're seeing that living like that forfeits the rest that we can have in trusting God fully in knowing that he is in control in trusting God almighty the God that has made promises to you and me this morning promises to be with us for the rest of our lives, promises to guide us and to lead us, promises to for us to be with him ultimately one day forever. And yet this morning, do you know, it is a scary place, isn't it, to trust God fully? As it must have been for Jacob, seeing all of his sons, all of them walk off to Egypt But Jacob is confident in his God, this God that has made the universe, this God that sustains and and holds all things together, every atom together. The God that has given breath and life to every living thing, breath to you and to me this morning. He is confident in, in his God and that God will be faithful to his promises to him and to his people. And so he lets go. And he trusts God. You see, that's the first change in our passage. Jacob goes from trusting himself to trusting God. But secondly and finally this morning, we see changed by grace. Changed by grace. You see, in this next section, we really get to the the heart of our passage this morning, which is the change we'll see in these brothers. You know, I don't know whether you've ever seen the the classic film Groundhog Day. Uh, The story of a guy... Uh, called Phil, who who realises that he's living the same day over and over again. And so the same people came up, come up to him, the the same songs play on the radio uh, and the same events happen to him each day. It's just one big repeat. And the slogan for this film, this great film for when it was being released, the slogan was life has a funny way of repeating itself. And, you know, for the brothers in our passage this morning, it must have felt a bit like Groundhog Day, uh, that life has a funny way of repeating itself. Because in our passage, the rest of our passage is almost a recreation of the story that we saw a couple of chapters ago when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. The circumstances are almost recreated. And the question really is, as we go through this, is, Well, will the brothers act in the same way? Will anything change? You see, the similarities start in chapter 43, when we see that the brothers, they're they're about to set off and they're taking this list of goods to Egypt to try and, you know, uh, bring peace between them and the man who's in Egypt, who's been really harsh with them. And yet, if you look at that list in chapter 43, verse 11, do you know, That's exactly the same list of goods that we see back in chapter 37, 25, that were in the Ishmaelite caravan that came and the brothers sold Joseph to into slavery. It's the same list. 
And then in the story, when it continues, we see that when the brothers get to Egypt, well, they meet Joseph and Joseph lays before them a meal, a really impressive meal. And, you know, this meal is really significant because actually it points us back again to that story back in chapter 37, when the brothers were plotting to kill and to sell their brother into slavery. Because when they were doing that, they were conspiring around a meal, Genesis 37, 25. And yet Joseph lays before them a meal, reminding them of that meal or when they uh, drew up their plan to sell him off into slavery. And yet, you know, it's at this meal that they're having and Joseph gives to his brothers that Benjamin in verse 34, we see that he is given five times the portions that were given to his brothers. And, you know, if we remember back at, about these brothers who are having this meal, well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that Previously, these brothers haven't coped well with other brothers and especially younger brothers getting preferential treatment. And so how would these brothers cope when they see their youngest brother getting more than they do? Would their envy creep up again? Would they build up hatred for their younger brother that he's being treated better than them? Oh, well, no. It appears not. Something's different. But then comes the real test in the passage this morning. You see, right the way through the passage, we've seen grace upon grace given to these brothers yet again. They've had Simeon return to them and they've been given food and water. Their donkeys have even been looked after. And chapter 44, verse one, Joseph orders his servants to fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouths of his sacks. It's just another picture of the grace that has been shown to these brothers who quite frankly don't deserve it, especially from Joseph. And all the way through our passage this morning, we actually get hints that actually this grace, whilst Joseph might have ordered it, actually behind it all, it's God being grace, gracious to these brothers. God is the one being gracious to them. But for all the grace that these brothers are receiving in our passage this morning, Joseph wants to see if they've really changed. And so Joseph, he sets out this scheme, doesn't he, where one of his silver cups, one of his precious silver cups is placed into Benjamin's sacks. And as the brothers, as they're heading off, returning home, he then orders his servants to chase after these brothers and to give them a word saying, why have you repaid good with evil. And the brothers can't quite understand why Joseph and his servants are, are accusing him them of these things. And so they plead their innocence. And Joseph and, and these brothers, they kind of have this deal that's worked out. And so whoever has the cup in the bag, if anyone has the cup in the bag, well, that person will become one of Joseph's slaves. And the brothers, presuming that they're all innocent, well, they agree and they each lower their sacks. And from the eldest to the youngest, they begin to open the sacks. And the cup, surprise and all shocks, is found in Benjamin's back. Now, at this moment, just remember who these brothers are. Let's remind ourselves of, of who we've seen them uh, and what we've seen them do. These brothers, do you know, they are 
particularly selfish, aren't they? We've seen that all the way through Genesis so far. They're capable of doing absolutely anything, even the worst things. And we know about these brothers that if they're given any opportunity to profit from something, well, they will seize that opportunity at whatever cost it might be, even if it's one of their brother's lives. And yet these 10 brothers have just been cleared of wrongdoing. Only the guilty one, Benjamin, will have to face the punishment. These brothers can leave with their lives intact. They don't have to be slaves. Freedom awaits these brothers. They don't have to go. And yet look at their reaction. Chapter 44, verse 13. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. They all tear their robes. It reminds us back in when they give the news to their father, Jacob, about Joseph. Only Jacob tears his robes at that news. But here, all of them are grieved. All of them are distraught at this news and they all tear their robes. And not only do they all tear their robes, but they all go to Egypt. Instead of leaving Benjamin that they could have done, they all make the journey to Egypt. A journey that, let's be real, they didn't know they would be able to make again. It could be their death sentence. It could be their uh, their their time where they go into slavery and yet they all go and they all stand with their brother these brothers are different these brothers have changed and you know if we want any more proof of that well to finish we get the most incredible statement from Judah who if we remember at the sort of halfway through our passage pledged himself to Benjamin before Jacob their father before they left And Judah, he steps forward and he gives one of the most moving speeches that we could imagine. And and this speech is quite long. And at the end of this speech, the big statement comes. Look with me at verse 31. Judah says, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that will come on my father. Judah, he actually goes through with his words. He actually proves and demonstrates that he would genuinely give his life for one of his brothers. You know, this is not the same Judah that we met a couple of chapters ago. This Judah that was sleeping with prostitutes, this Judah that was doing a whole load of shameful things. Judah and indeed the rest of the brothers are different. They've changed. Grace has changed these brothers. They were faced with almost the exact same situation like 20 years ago and they didn't act like they did before. These brothers would kill one of their other brothers for profit and now they would give their own life so that the other brother could profit instead. Isn't it amazing? These brothers have been completely changed by grace. You see, this is what God's grace does in our lives. It changes us. Grace doesn't leave us living the way that we were. Grace doesn't make us just say two words and then forget everything else. Grace changes us. It molds us. It leads us onwards. 
It doesn't make us want to continue in the way that we were once living. You see, you know, we can talk a lot, especially at church, about grace, can't we? It's a beautiful word and it means so much. And we love talking about grace. We love singing about grace and how amazing that grace is. But, you know, what often doesn't get talked about is where that grace is meant to lead us, where it's meant to lead. And it's meant to lead to repentance. And I know that maybe that word can seem really ugly to us and it's filled with so many horrible connotations maybe for us. But repentance, it it literally means to turn around, to change the way that we think, to change ultimately the way that we were living once we rejected God. But now we love God. Once we didn't want to do what God says, now we strive to live by God's word. You know, it says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that God's grace is meant to lead us to repentance. Again, later on in in Romans chapter six, verse one, Paul, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. You know, I was thinking about it and and it's really easy. You know, it's so possible, isn't it, to be in love with Jesus, to be in love with his grace, but not to love where that grace is meant to lead. We love that Jesus offers forgiveness, but we don't love his call to put him first in every area of our lives. We might love the hope and the life that Jesus offers to us, but we don't love his call to pick up our cross and to follow him. We might love the comfort and the peace that Jesus promises to give his people, but we don't love the call for us to unashamedly live for him, despite what others might think. You see, this morning, Jesus' grace that he offers to us is meant to lead us to repentance, lead us to being like him, just like these brothers, to being dead to sin and alive to God and ultimately he's given us his spirit to help us in that effort and yet do you know as this passage again points us to the grace that we know in Jesus it points us ultimately again to Jesus himself because although Judah he offered to give his life in place of his brother Benjamin ultimately Judah never had to He never actually had to give his life for his brothers. And yet, you know, funnily enough, one of his descendants would. Jesus from the tribe of Judah not just offered his life, but actually gave his life for us. Not just talked about it, but did it. Mark chapter 10 verse 35 says, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life on that cross in the place of you and me this morning. Jesus took our punishment for all of the guilt and the sin in our place. He took all of God's wrath and all of his anger in our place so that this morning we might receive grace. We might receive grace and forgiveness, but also that we might respond in the right way. Respond in repentance. Do you know how awful it would be? 
how awful it would be to say thank you to Jesus for what he did, but to continue to live in a way that forced Jesus to go to the cross in the first place. How dreadful that would be. What a mockery that would be of Jesus' sacrifice. Grace is meant to change us. Grace to shape our lives, not just to love what Jesus has done for us, but to love and to embrace the way that Jesus has called us to live in response to him. Grace changed these brothers. They weren't the same. Judah certainly wasn't the same. And so this morning, I pray more than anything as we marvel and we we, we look at the, the immense grace that has been shown to us, the immense love and kindness that Jesus has, has given and offers us each this morning. I pray that that wouldn't leave us the same, that we wouldn't be the same. And that we wouldn't just treat it as saying just a couple of words and, and that's it, but rather we would respond the right way. And that we would echo, and I want to end with these words from Paul, again, from Galatians 2 verse 20, I want us to echo this in response to the grace that we've received. And Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for your love. But Lord Jesus, we recognise that this grace that you give us is meant to lead somewhere. It's meant to lead to a change in our lives, meant to lead to repentance of, of a life that is full of trust and obedience to you, Lord Jesus. A life that puts you first, a life that trusts you in all circumstances. Lord Jesus, we want this grace to change us. We want this grace to be evident in our lives. And so that when other people see us, they see something of your grace in our own lives. Lord Jesus, please don't let us be the same. Lord Jesus, let your love and your grace shape us and change us. You, Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave your life for us. We thank you and we worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.